0: The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, February 16, 2020, on the basis of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Sometimes when people hear good news, they are so excited that they fail to pay attention to all of the details that go along with that good news. Lately, I've noticed that this is especially true of second graders. On Wednesday mornings, I help teach a program called Junior Achievement. It's sort of a a basic, basic civics program in a couple of the second grade classrooms here in town And the program is supposed to be fun. It's sort of a break from the normal everyday routine for these kids. And so very often the lesson for the day includes some sort of game. But I've made the mistake a couple of times now of announcing to the kids when it's time for us to play the game. And of course they get very excited. They get all fired up. Which means that as soon as I tell them the very first thing that they need to do, they immediately start doing it at 100 miles an hour and the decibel level in the room rises to a fevered pitch and I've lost all control and lost all ability to share with them the remaining details of that game. Those details are important, of course, because they tell the kids what they need to know in order to be able to carry out the game correctly. Those details provide direction. It's great that the kids are all fired up and ready to go, but without the details, they lack that much-needed direction. If the Word of God is sort of like a light that shines into our lives, then it's really no surprise that the Word of God sort of acts the same way. We're nearing the end of this series that's entitled, Let There Be Light. And for most of this series, what we've seen is that the light of God's Word helps us to see all kinds of really good news. It helps us see how much God loves us unconditionally. It helps us see what Jesus has done to save us from our sins. It helps us see where we stand with God and where we are going to spend our eternities as a result. It helps us see all of that wonderful good news. And yet it also provides us with some much-needed details. Details that we need to pay careful attention to because evidently, Christians sometimes act a lot like second graders. Sometimes Christians hear all of that good news and they're so eager to go off in their lives at 100 miles an hour serving God in whatever way that they can and yet they do so without some much-needed direction. In fact, we're going to see today that very often Christians lack direction in exactly the same sort of ways no matter who they are and no matter when they have lived. We're going to see that some of the lack of direction demonstrated in first century Greece is actually a lot similar to some of the lack of direction we see in 21st century America. And so as we look at these verses, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul tell us to, to slow down and pay very careful attention. Yes, the light of God's word shows us all kinds of good news, but it also shows us some very important details, details that give us that direction that we need. Out of all the ways that we might try and serve God in our lives, out of all the ways that we might come up with on our own for doing the things that please him, the word of God helps us see what really does please him, what truly is important to him. As we look at these verses from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, his message and his encouragement to us will be this that when you look at Jesus, you see what matters to God. When Paul had first shown up in this Greek city known as Thessalonica, he wasn't able to stay for nearly as long as he wanted to. And the reason for that was because very early on there was some anti Christian persecution in Thessalonica that forced Paul to flee. That persecution continued and the Christians in that city had to endure it even after Paul left. And so it's not a surprise that there was one specific aspect of the good news of Jesus Christ that these Thessalonians really grabbed onto and really became focused on. And it was the good news that Jesus was coming back. Yes, their lives as Christians were hard. Yes, this persecution was making their lives difficult. But the good news was Jesus was coming back. And when he did, he was going to bring a reward for all of his followers, for all those who believed in him. And he was going to bring judgment to those people who were persecuting these Christians. These Christians in Thessalonica grabbed onto and became focused on that aspect of the good news to such a degree that it caused them to lose sight of some of the details. It caused them to not have a very clear answer to a very important question. Yes, Jesus is coming back, but what should we be up to in the meantime? Evidently, some of the Christians in Thessalonica thought to themselves, well, as long as we're just sitting around waiting, we might as well try and enjoy life as much as we possibly can. In fact, they looked at the city around them and the society around them and they saw that everyone else seemed to be having a whole lot of fun especially as they acted out on their physical desires in all kinds of different forms of sexual immorality. Evidently, some of the people in Thessalonica thought, well, if everyone else is doing that, if that's bringing them enjoyment, why don't we do that as well? After all, when Jesus comes back, he's going to take us out of this world. So maybe the things that we do in this world during our lives, maybe they just don't matter a whole lot. As I mentioned, that's an idea that wasn't just present in first century Greece. It's also very prevalent in 21st century America. It is very common to be told that you have every right to be able to act out on your desires. In fact, the common belief today and the thing that we're often told is that our desires are not just things that we have. Our desires are really what define who we are. In fact, specifically, those physical, sexual desires that we have for other people, really more than anything else, define who we are. Our bodies, on the other hand, sure, they're nice, they're important, but, but they don't really have anything to say about who we are or the types of relationships that we should be in. Really, our bodies just exist to, to help us gratify all the desires that we have. We might picture it this way, that if you had the desire to go to Madison today after church, I'm guessing that you would act on that desire. You would bring that desire to fruition by hopping in your car and driving there. The framework that a lot of people are working with today is sort of in line with that picture, that the real you is like the driver of that car. The real you is the part of you that tells you what you want and where you want to go. The car, again, it's important, it's useful, but it's not you. It's just the thing that helps you get where you want to go. So the thinking goes. I think you'd agree it it might be helpful to have a little bit of direction. There's some light that Paul wants to shine on this whole way of thinking. And he does so by saying this. It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul says, your desires are not the sum and substance of who you are. They do not define you. And your body is far more than just something that you use in order to act out on those desires. No, instead, as Christians, we evaluate our desires on the basis of God's word and then, as a result, use God's word to control our bodies, to take care of the bodies that God has given us. God himself is the one who has given us our bodies. And as Paul reminds us, not only that, but God values our bodies so much that he has placed his Holy Spirit in them to serve as his temple. We might picture a prospective tenant who walks into an empty apartment takes a look around, walks into each and every room and at the end of it all says, yep, this will do. This is the place where I want to live. Paul reminds us, that's how much God values your body, that the Holy Spirit has decided to make your body his temple. You are more than just your mind and your soul and your heart. You are more than just your emotions and your thoughts and your will. That physical part of you matters very much to God as well. And so what should you be doing while you're waiting for Jesus to return? You should control it. You should take care of it. Why? Because your matter matters to God. Evidently, that wasn't the only lack of direction that was being demonstrated among these Thessalonian Christians when it came to that important question of what should we be up to while we're waiting for Jesus to return. As I mentioned, they were so excited to see Jesus come back. They were hoping that it happened very, very quickly. And then they looked at all of the laundry that was starting to pile up in their house they looked at the crops in their garden that needed to be planted and harvested. They looked at the people in need around them and they started to wonder them, to themselves, well, if Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon, does any of that really matter? Is any of that really all that important? And again, evidently some of them came to the answer, came to the conclusion that the answer was no. No. Evidently, especially the men in Thessalonica had sort of abandoned the daily work of daily life. And instead, what they like to do is they like to get together in the public spaces around town and kind of just sit around thinking and talking about the latest ideas and issues that they were facing. In fact, they kind of turned this into something of a sport. They tried to perfect the art of expressing their opinions and trying to persuade others to share those opinions. Whoever could articulate themselves the best and convince as many people as possible to share their opinion would win the respect of their fellow peers. Meanwhile, The real work of real everyday life was either left to somebody else or neglected altogether. Again, that's a a mindset and a behavior that didn't just happen in first century Greece. It can very easily happen in 21st century America as well. Many of you are probably aware that last Sunday evening was the annual Oscars awards ceremony. Evidently, about 23.6 million people tuned in last Sunday night to watch the Oscars, which sounds like a lot, but it was actually the lowest number in recorded history, the lowest number they'd ever measured. In fact, you maybe are aware that in recent years, viewership of award shows like the Oscars has just been going down, 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 down. And many people believe It's because, more and more, those award shows are not about the performers and their performances. Instead, they are more and more about the political opinions and the self-righteous scoldings that get shared during people's acceptance speeches. There are a lot of people in America, maybe even a lot of people in this room, who are not big fans of the idea that celebrities would stand up on their platform with their microphone and sort of lecture the rest of the public about how they are to think or how they are to live. And yet, do we often fall victims of the very same trap? That as we think about what God would want us to do, as we think about how we could live our lives in service to him, that we would maybe have this impression that the way that we can serve our neighbor and the way that we can make the world a better place is that we first of all hold to the right position on a particular issue and then advocate for that position as loudly and as vocally as we can. And I know we don't have a stage at the Oscars, but our smartphones and our laptops and our social media accounts give us all a microphone and a platform of our own. Again, some direction would be very, very beneficial. There's some light that Paul wants to shed on this way of thinking, and he does so by saying this. He says now about your love for one another, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. Far from telling us to step up to the mic and tell everyone else how to think or act, Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Keep your nose out of business where it doesn't belong. And as you think about what other people around you might need, don't think about a bunch of nameless, faceless people and the hypothetical ways in which you might improve their lives. Look at the real, live people in real life right around you and ask yourself what you might do to help them in need. Look at your family, look at your neighbors, look at your coworkers and use whatever resources God has given you to help them and to improve their lives. Work with your hands to do so, Paul says. Recently, I came across a quotation from Martin Luther that is very much in the spirit, I think, of what Paul is saying here. Luther said this. He was talking to working people, and he said, Just look at your tools, your needle or thimble, your beer barrel, your goods, your scales or yardstick or measure. They are all crying out to you. Friend, use me in your dealings with your neighbor. We might update it a little bit. I think today Luther might say, just look at your dining room table. Look at that refrigerator that is absolutely full of food. It is crying out to you, use me to invite over a neighbor for dinner. Look at that big, beautiful deck that is sitting attached to your house. It is crying out to you, use me to invite your coworkers over for happy hour on a Friday afternoon, once it warms up, of course. Look at that supercomputer that you hold in the palm of your hand or that fits neatly inside of your pocket. It is crying out to you, Use me not just to take an endless string of selfies and not just to post tirades on social media. Use me to call up someone who you know is feeling lonely. Or better yet, use the navigation system and that car that you drive to drive over to someone's house who is feeling lonely. All of these are wonderful ways in which we have opportunity to serve our neighbor. What should we be up to as we are waiting for Jesus to return? God never tells us to make the whole wide world a better place for a bunch of nameless and faceless people who are somewhere out there. He tells us to look at the real people in the real life that is right in front of us and use our hands to do whatever they need to serve them. Why? Because not only does your matter matter to God, but your neighbors matter, also matters to God. The light of God's word not only shows us all kinds of good news, it also shows us all of those wonderful details. It shows us the path that we can walk to truly please God and do the things that are important to Him. And those details that Paul provides in these verses are not somehow different or disconnected from that good news. In fact, it's interesting how many times Paul says in these verses, I, I've already told you this, you guys should know this already. Really, the good news of Jesus and the details that go along with it go hand in hand. In fact, if you need proof that matter matters to God, look no further than Jesus. When God looked out at a world that was hopelessly lost in sin and loved it enough to save it, how did he do that? Did he shout down directions? Did he email an instruction manual for how to turn things around? No, His own son became a part of that world. He took on a flesh and blood human body, a body that he used to live a perfect life under the law for us, a body that he then offered on the cross as payment for our sins. When it came time for God to demonstrate that Jesus' work as our Savior was finished and complete and enough, how did he do that? Did he step up to the mic and stand on a stage and just announce it to the whole world? No, he demonstrated it with a resurrection. A real body, really dead, really back to life again. When Jesus comes back, when God brings all of human history to an end, when he brings our eternal reward with us and brings judgment on all of his enemies, the very thing that these Thessalonians were so excited about, how is God going to do that? He's going to send Jesus. Body and soul together, Jesus. Who is going to bring us, body and soul together, us, to the eternal, perfect paradise that He has prepared. The good news of Jesus and the details about how to serve Him go hand in hand. If you need proof that matter matters to God, look no further than Jesus. And keep that in mind as you are eager to live your life in service to God, as you eagerly seek an answer to that question, what should I be up to while I'm waiting for Jesus to return? There's a story that's often told about how Martin Luther was one time asked that question or a question like it. If you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you be up to today? And Luther reportedly gave something of a surprising answer. He said, I would go out to my garden and I would plant a tree. Luther's point was that if he knew Jesus was coming back, rather than climbing up on the roof of his house and just standing there staring up into the sky, he would want that when Jesus came back, he would be doing the things that he knew mattered to God. And Luther knew that matter mattered to God. Your matter matters to God. Your neighbor's matter matters to God. This good creation that God made, that God redeemed, that God will one day restore. It all matters to God. That's what the light enables you to see. Not just the good news, but those important details as well. It lights up this beautiful, wonderful path that God wants you to walk. And so as you head out that door today, go ahead and head down that path as fast as you possibly can. Amen.